Welcome to Inclusion for All, a podcast that examines the stories, strategies, and successes of including people with disabilities into diverse communities, schools, and workplaces. This is our first ever episode, so we're excited to kick things off and start the conversation about how the work being done to improve outcomes and opportunities for people with disabilities. Today we're going to be talking about technical assistance, uh, which partners autism expertise through VCU's Autism Center for Excellence with school district and teacher leaders uh, within three-year cohorts focused on improving services for students with autism. We have here in the studio Carol Shaw, Stacy Carr, and Emily Himbolt from the Autism Center for Excellence. Hi, guys. Hi. Thank hey, you. Josh. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so tell us a little bit, just to kick things off, what is technical <laughs> assistance? Well, technical assistance really takes training and puts it on steroids in some mm. ways. One of the things that we've found is simply training people, telling them what to do is not enough. That what they really need is technical assistance in taking information that they learn through training and translating it into their environments. So through technical assistance, what we do is we partner with school divisions to really help them improve their overall services for individuals with autism. What we used to do in the past is do more of a consultative model where we would maybe observe one student with one teacher and give recommendations to that teacher. If you've ever been in that position, maybe if you're a teacher or if you're a service provider, you understand that how hard that is. That you might receive a list of recommendations and think to yourself, I have no clue how to implement this. Through technical assistance, what we do is we really go into those divisions and help them translate those expert recommendations, those evidence-based practices into their contexts for their students. Sounds great. I think we've all been in those trainings that either aren't relevant or we feel like we leave and we, uh, we've been there, we've learned some things, but we're not really sure how to put it into practice. Uh, that sounds great. One of the things that we do, though, is start with where the division's at. So we take pretty extensive um, baseline data uh, from the division as a whole, so the large picture of the division, and then in classrooms to see the environment for students with autism. And so that really helps shape where we start with them in improving their services and, and where their training needs are and where technical assistance would be most effective. Hmm. So to back up a little bit, um, for folks that, that may be new to this uh, this whole concept, why, why need for services in this area for students with autism uh, specifically? Well, here in Virginia, a few years ago, there was a study done by the JLARC Commission as commissioned by the General Assembly. Um, and what they found was that from birth to death here in Virginia, um, we were not doing a good job serving people with autism. Um, so the Department of Education really stepped up very quickly and said we need a center um, to really look at this and improve services within our public schools. And um, so that was when the Autism Center for Excellence was born. Um, and so our mission really is to build capacity within school divisions across the state to serve students better. Okay. Well, what are some of the areas that the report highlighted? Uh, you mentioned through the lifespan. Uh, what are the areas that we're kind of looking to improve? Well, what we found in Virginia in public schools was that there was really highly variable practice. So you might have a teacher who had some real understanding of autism and real ability to implement evidence-based practices in his or her classroom. But the very next year, a child with autism might move to a teacher who didn't have those skills. And so that variability meant that um, that student might make progress and then lose that progress and then make progress and then lose that progress. And from a statewide view, 
what that looked like was more people not knowing what to do than knowing what to do. And so our charge literally was to raise the bar of excellence in education for everyone. And so we, we, we do that at ACE in two ways. First of all, we created a website with a wide array of very rich, very deep resources. And so if you're a resident in Virginia listening to this podcast, there are a number of courses and a number of seminars and webcasts that you can access. If you're not in Virginia and you're listening, you can access some other aspects of our website like fact sheets. Um, we have a number of short videos, how-to videos that show you a practice in effect in a classroom. We also have some short Ask the Expert videos that you can access and look at and learn more about evidence-based practices. Those training resources are helpful, but as we just mentioned, training alone does not solve the problem. The other aspect of what we do is partner with school divisions to really help them address their deep problems as it relates to autism. Well, thanks for mentioning that, Carol. And for those of you joining us from iTunes or SoundCloud, uh, the website uh, that Carol mentioned is vcuautismcenter.org. And you can access all of those resources, fact sheets, videos, uh, our new My Ace Dashboard um, interactive um, modules that you can kind of work through and customize on your own. They're great for uh, earning recertification points if you're up for recertification as a teacher. Uh, so yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit more about the process. What what have you found that works within technical assistance um, in addition to, to training? What is it that you're kind of trying to promote to, to raise the bar for, uh, for teachers across the board? Um, two of the biggest parts of our technical assistance work is not only building the knowledge, which we've kind of talked about, um, and what Stacy mentioned earlier is figuring out where a division is at, so to speak, in that um, what groups of staff within that division need to build their knowledge in certain areas. Um, but that's not complete. You have to then follow up with support within the classroom or within that group of staff so that you actually see the practice occur within the classroom. Because like we said earlier, um, you can train all day, but what we know from the research is that doesn't always result in practice. And so really building in that infrastructure within the division for coaching and follow-up and data collection so that the practices occur within the classroom consistently. Mm. Um, Stacy, I think you were just the other day reading about evidence-based practices from the National Professional Development Center, right? Yes. The NPDC, or the National Professional Development Center out of North Carolina, has done an amazing job looking at evidence-based practices and going through the rigor of determining which practices are, in fact, evidence-based. Well, there are about 30 of them, and um, what we have done at BCU ACE is taken the most um, basic, fundamental um, five practices and really have worked with divisions to make sure that those are the practices that they're starting with. Um, oftentimes, divisions want to start with something a little bit more um, aggressive or um, maybe not as um, easily to implement. And so things like um, video modeling or computer-aided instruction. But we've said, you know, those are great, but what we need to do first are these foundational five. And those are visual strategies, so really looking at what strategies that can be implemented both at a classroom level and an individual level to help a person with transitions, with organization, with um, really structuring their day. Um, Antecedent-based interventions, so uh, determining what we can do in the environment in the beginning, 
um, that can really set up for success in the classroom and through transitions. Um, systematic instruction, making sure that um, the way we're providing information to students and teaching them is in a very systematic way so that that's um, most easily accepted. Uh, reinforcement, of course. So we know that when we reinforce the behaviors we want to see, they'll increase. Um, and that seems like a simple strategy, but oftentimes we get so lost in the day and reinforcement is kind of hard sometimes. Um, and then functional communication and social skills. So looking at what, um, what's going to be most meaningful for students. We want them to progress through school without a functional means of communication so that when they graduate, they're able to communicate with the, the community at large. And then social skills, making sure that um, they're able to take turns, be in person's space appropriately, um, and engage in meaningful relationships. That's great. Yeah, I think um, th we're very fortunate in autism education to have such a really robust uh, research literature mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, and also for the MPDC to organize those in a way. So I can see where it's very helpful to have uh, just a narrow focus on those kind of five practices. It's easy to get lost in the weeds with uh, so many of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that we work very hard on through our technical assistance project is not only to look at those bottom-up classroom-based practices, mm -hmm. but also to take a look at what is happening division-wide to create a top-down support for that classroom. Well, as I mentioned earlier, going classroom to classroom may have been effective in the earlier days when we counted 400 kids with autism statewide. Well, today in Virginia, we estimate that there's probably 17 to 18,000 kids with autism receiving education in the state. And so, as we begin to work with that many people, what we have to really do is think carefully about not only the classrooms, but the school divisions as a whole. And when we work with that bottom-up, top-down model, what we're really doing is increasing classroom-based practice, but also looking at those system-wide, those school division-wide forces that will improve practice across the entire age range. And so that's really one of our major focuses in, in VCUA's technical assistance, is to make sure that we're doing classroom and school division work. So one of the ways we address technical assistance needs within school divisions is to work from a top-down, bottom-up perspective. The bottom up really is what's happening in individual classrooms throughout the division, and that's in both self-contained and inclusive classrooms. And that's really an effort to improve practice at the closest level to the student. So we might go into classrooms and really assist teams in um, implementing those evidence-based practices that Stacy talked about. At the top-down level, what we're really looking at there is how do we prove, improve practice across an entire school division. So what we're really trying to do with the top-down portion of our model is to influence practice across the division so that a student who might be doing well in second grade because her teacher has learned a lot about autism will continue to do well in middle school and high school and and then eventually, as they prepare to graduate, we'll have many more options in life. That makes sense. So what would be an example of some of the top-down uh, kind of policy work that you've done within divisions? Sure, I can definitely bring up an example there. Um, just to add, for the top-down supports, what we're looking at, 
like you just said, Josh, was a, uh, in some cases it might be policies that we need to consider within the division and work with the division to change policies or create new ones in order to support those uh, bottom-up practices uh, and build capacity there. Um, and sometimes we also work on um, building the knowledge base um, with administrators across a division of different levels. Uh, because sometimes that's also needed in order to support what we're trying to do at the bottom up. So an example of a top-down um, support that um, I worked with a division on um, is where we had a group of speech-language therapists. Um, and what we decided um, is to develop more of a policy uh, approach to changing service delivery so that the um, therapist would be in the classroom providing services collaboratively with the teachers within the classroom and utilizing um, general education peers um, to serve as role models. Um, and so what we did was we built up the knowledge base um, within the speech language therapists. Um, and so that really involved working with two departments uh, within the division. So it was working with the um, SLP department as well as the autism supports department. Um, and so it became more accepted practice throughout the division that um, this was a better way to deliver services to students with autism because as we know, um, students with autism benefit from those practice opportunities and generalization opportunities within the classroom. That's great. It seems like you really uh, have to, through your work, kind of figure out the different moving pieces within each of the divisions. I imagine there's quite a bit of variation from uh, community to community. There really is. I know Stacy is working with a school division that has done a very innovative model that involves all aspects of the community. Oh, could you tell us more about it, Stacey? Absolutely. So, the NEST program is a really neat uh, model that looks at uh, including students who might otherwise be in a self-contained classroom in a general education uh, setting. So there's the implementation of evidence-based practices, tier one supports that we have talked about, but also including the co-teaching of a special education teacher and a general education teacher seamlessly. Um, without any paraprofessional support. And that's something that I, I really mm. appreciate. Um, and so in this rural Virginia division, they have done an amazing job. And this, this was definitely a policy sort of movement. And it started with um, the superintendents and looking at how we can include students with autism more seamlessly in their schools. So we piloted the NEST program in one elementary school, third grade classroom. And third grade's a big year because it's a, a, a SOL year or a standards of learning testing year. And so there are four students with autism included in this class. And while it's a smaller class size, um, it's still, you know, lots of uh, general ed peers around. Um, and there were two students who um, were in self-contained classrooms throughout school up until then. And this year, they have been included very successfully. They've taken the SOLs. Um, they have friends. They go to birthday parties. They're, um, they don't look any different than their peers in the, on the playground. Um, and they're really, uh, the teachers have done a fabulous job using those supports for all students. So there's flexible seating. They can sit on yoga balls or stand. Um, there's a 
a really cool uh, Batman's Den where the kids can take a break if they need to, if they're frustrated or need just a few minutes to regroup. Um, and these are strategies that all the students are using. And the success of this classroom it has been amazing. And again, it started with the superintendent, the special education director, and then the principal. And that person has been absolutely paramount in this process and has really um, made this program not just for this third grade classroom, but everyone in the school knows about it and really is looking to um, implement some of those strategies in their own classroom. So it's been very, very useful. Um, and in fact, next year they're going to loop those teachers up to fourth grade, and then there's going to be a kindergarten classroom as well. That's great, Stacey. I know inclusion is an area that uh, really um, uh, a lot of school divisions are trying to, to do more of, especially for our students with autism. Yes. Um, I know that's been an emphasis more and more, and, and uh, that's great to hear. An unlikely story that uh, a rural uh, Appalachian district would uh, find uh, find the model that worked for them in New York City and, and make that happen and, and bridge that. Uh, so that's great. Um, I think we have a, a little bit more about that if you're interested in hearing more about the NEST model uh, in the division on our website. I believe there's a the fact sheet that yes. you can check out there at uh, the vcuautismcenter.org website. I think both of these projects, both the, the NEST classroom and the um, speech language pathologist um, initiative that both Emily and Stacy talked about, really point to both the bottom-up, top-down approach. Um, in essence, we trained these teachers and these speech therapists how to do evidence-based practice in classrooms, but without coordination of the whole division working to support that effort, we wouldn't see the changes that we're seeing. And so the NEST classroom can't exist from a teacher just doing it. That teacher needs the cooperation of the entire school division so that that initiative can continue. The speech language pathologists might on their own, one by one, be able to implement practices in the classroom, but it takes the whole division working together to figure out how to solve their own problems within their division. And so I think that's one of the aspects of our technical assistance that is really important. We don't bring a model in and make the division do what we think they should do. Instead, we sit with the division, we help them complete their own assessments, and we help them strategically plan how to best address their problems within the culture and the values of their division. And I think that that's a very different approach. <clears throat> We use applied behavior analysis. We use evidence-based practices, but we use them in the ways that the division can fit into their own experiences. And I think that really differentiates our work from, um, you know, packaged programs that you might see on um, through the internet or through research. Packaged programs are very difficult to lift up and move into school divisions wholesale. So that bottom-up, top-down really is a, a collaborative approach. We work very hard with our divisions to get to know them, to facilitate problem-solving teams, and to strategically plan to address their problems. I'm so glad you brought that up, Carol, because looking at Virginia, we have uh, quite an array of school divisions from extremely large northern Virginia um, school divisions to very rural school divisions in southwest Virginia where there's mountains all around the division and there's not a lot of resources. And we really go into those divisions with open eyes and wanting to hear from them 
what their needs are. And it looks very different across the region. And um, it's, it's important to, to look at that and to meet the division where they're at. If we were to come in with a one-size-fits-all model, it would not be effective for all the divisions. One or two might make great progress. The others, it, it wouldn't be a match. And that's not going to be systems change. So let's talk a little bit about sustainability. Uh, so it's a three-year grant cycle, right? So mm -hmm. it sounds like there's a tremendous amount of work that's happening uh, kind of at all levels of the division. Uh, as you said, the, the bottom-up, so working in the classrooms, doing a lot of coaching, um, uh, disseminating evidence-based practices uh, within kind of classroom level, and then looking at the policy and just a lot of moving parts. Um, so how does it all come to a screeching halt after three years? It kind of doesn't actually come to a screeching halt. <laughs> okay, <moment>. all right. <laughs> we, we have a two-year follow-along period. Okay. And so we know that systems change actually takes about five years to really take mm. hold. We also know that if we are in the division fully for five years, what will happen is that the division will become dependent upon us to be their change agents. Makes sense. And we really want the divisions to take ownership of that. And so... What we frequently do is we go in and we work intensively with the divisions for three years to basically not only train them in the evidence-based practices and in coaching, but we're literally teaching them how to strategically plan themselves. Because we want them to sustain change, we want them to own the process. And so those three years, it, yes, we are working on those, those classroom-based bottom-up practices. But we're also really training those division leaders how to engage in strategic planning and problem solving, that top-down piece. When we begin to fade in year four, what happens is we touch base with those division leaders at least twice a month. And what we're doing is we're advising them on how to continue leading their leadership teams, on how to continue strategically planning and solving the problems that they face. And so we're continuing to touch base with them, but more as consultants to the leadership team than as the um, implementers of the plan. Then in year five, we step back one step further and we maybe are touching base once a month. But so there is a gradual fade out that we can sustain those changes. We're now beginning our third cohort. Our first cohort still contacts us every so often for advice, for help, and still continues to implement really excellent models of, of change within their divisions. And so as we work cohort to cohort to cohort, what we're seeing is sustainability of both those professional development practices that make a difference, as well as implementing evidence-based practices in the classrooms themselves. Makes sense. It's almost like kind of fading support with a behavior plan uh, so that we kind of give independence back over to the students. So, Absolutely. Uh, if I can add one thing um, just to elaborate a little bit on what Carol was just saying, um, in year three in our work, um, we engage in another round of strategic planning where we look at the services improvement plan that we've been working with for the past three years or the first three years of our um, technical assistance. And we figure out at this point in time, where have we built the infrastructure within the division? Um, where are we with our goals? And we create a sustainability plan. So that's really not just a two-year follow-up plan, but it's really how, are, how is this, all this wonderful work that we've done the first three years, how is, it, how is it going to become part of how the division does their business for students with autism? Great. And we really want to make sure that it's not dependent on 
people because people retire, people move, um, win the lottery, but we want them to, as a division, have those processes in place so that whoever steps in can continue the process. That's great. So um, kind of looking forward to the future as a kind of wrap up, well, where do you, each of you see kind of the future of not only technical assistance, but kind of autism education within Virginia and, and, uh, and broader? Um, I really think that this problem-solving approach is the future of autism. Uh, we, we know what to do with individual kids. We know what should probably be happening in classrooms, but we really don't know what the impact of this many kids are going to be long-term. We know that autism is now estimated to be over 1% of the child population. And so as we look forward to um, more and more kids with autism entering school divisions, what we know is that this is not one disability with one set of characteristics, that this is a range of abilities with a range of characteristics. And so to, to teach people to strategically plan and solve problems within their own divisions really is the future. In fact, I'm reminded of a quote by Margaret Mead, one of my favorite quotes that you know, keeps me going every day. And that is this, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only way it's ever happened. And so for kids with autism across Virginia, it is these autism services improvement teams that come together regularly to solve problems within their division that is really the future of education for autism in Virginia. I absolutely agree with Carol, but when I think about autism, I really think about inclusion, and not just inclusion as far as school goes, but inclusion in community, in college, in employment, and really setting up all students for the best quality of life possible, um, and really wrapping the community around each person. Um, we all have a community of friends, of colleagues, of of church, of, of different groups, and that keeps us going. And we, we would hope that that would be the same for all students with autism. Great. Well, thank you all so much for joining us, uh, Stacy, Emily, and Carol. Uh, it's just been a fantastic conversation and a great way to kick off our new podcast series, Inclusion for All. And uh, for those of you listening, uh, please hit subscribe to uh, whichever service you're using and check back uh, soon for another episode. Uh, where we look at some more of the stories, strategies, and successes of uh, what's working for including people with disabilities in communities around Virginia and uh, even further abroad. So thank you so much and goodbye. The VCU Autism Center for Excellence is funded by a grant from the Virginia Department of Education. Music composed by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. The intro was Too Cool, and the outro was Dark Sealand. Many thanks to the staff of the workshop at Cavill Library for their support and expertise in helping produce this podcast. I'm Josh Taylor, and I'll talk to you next time.